I'm Lane. And I'm Sharis. We are two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From empathy to racism, sickness, time, and much more, we're here to talk about why our brains do the things they do and how to use our minds to become happier and healthier people through the power of knowing more. While it's easy to get lost in the science, we'll do our best to make these topics easy to digest so that you can better understand your brain and no longer be controlled by its functions. The more we understand about our brain, the more control we get over how we think and feel, and thus, the more we empower ourselves to live the lives we want and positively impact others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Brain Blown Podcast. I am Sharis here with Lane to talk to you about all the wonderful things about our brains and the stupid things that they do and why it happens. And we are here for it. We really hope that you guys enjoyed Empathy Part 1 and Part 2. You know that we did. We did our best to cram as much information as we could. And honestly, it turns out there is so much more beyond that conversation that we got to have that we're looking to use more of these episodes to come to really branch off of it and just share how in-depth these topics branch into every area of our life. And to try to continue that conversation and that they're branching off because it's really discussing that we wouldn't just be discussing the brain. We would be discussing our whole body because one of the one of the critiques that I give not infrequently to modern medicine is, for those of you who know who are in the medical field, is we have a tendency to think of the brain and the body as separate beings. A lot of our doctors will focus a lot more, a lot of our traditional MDs focus a lot more on the body. And actually, when they get to things like mental health, (laughs) it's very interesting because they have a very hands-off approach. They want nothing to do with it, right? So much so that our hospitals are even regulated as to basically the body and then maybe the fifth floor, which is essentially mental health or the brain. Yes, separate floors, literally. absolutely separate and separate conversations. So there isn't as much education in mental health on the body and there isn't as much education in physical health on the brain. Mm. And I, I think it's really cool that we get to start having a conversation about how absolutely, of course, those things are connected. We often think of ourselves as floating heads, but the reality is we're a whole inner working system and you can't change the body without changing the brain and you cannot change the brain without changing the body and so this is kind of a further conversation as to that as will a lot of things be because we need to look at ourselves as a whole system we can't look at a car just for the engine we have to look at all the different pieces to it because if your tire falls off it doesn't matter if your engine doesn't if your engine works because you're not going anywhere (laughs) and that's kind of us as well and so this is going to we're going to play into what we talked about in episode one and what we talked about in episode two and three i will say if you haven't listened that's completely okay and we'll try to make sure that we recap sure that you're not needing uh, that kind of information So really, one of the first places that we're going to go with this, but you're going to see how it's going to continue really fast, is when we were talking about empathy, a key structure that we'll kind of go back to a lot is human evolution, because our brain and our bodies, again, make way more sense if you put us back to our beginning evolution, because we evolved to adapt to those surroundings. And as I've said before, we seem to have adapted much faster society-wise than we have internally. But one of the key pieces we talked in empathy was also about the evolution of the necessity for us to exist in groups. 
It is absolutely a crucial thing, and I think we're going to come back to it a lot, about we live in a world where other things are faster, stronger, and more deadlier than we are. So if you remember from episode uh, two, from the first part of Empathy, we talked about how we decided to have bigger brains, right? Because we had bigger brains, it meant that we put a lot of our body's focus on having bigger brains, which means because they take so much to fuel, our other muscles atrophied. So we are not as fast, we are not as strong, we we are not as deadly as a lot of the things around us. And that's key because a key piece to having bigger brains was to survive. We have to survive in large numbers. That's our strength. But to survive in large numbers, we had to evolve so that we could connect in a group. We had to become a group species. And that's going to be very, very unique to our neuroscience Mm. because our neuroscience to our neuroevolution is that we had to evolve in a way to make that make sense and to make it work successfully. This is already making so much sense. And I'm already seeing the connection literally between brain and body. Mm -hmm. How we open this is it's just proof when you think about how we were like literally back in caveman times, you think about the few things that we were able to do literally with our bodies as well as the thoughts that we probably had and the concerns that we were worried about. And it's like as our brain grows, our bodies are capable almost of doing more exactly exactly and there that being said we we didn't come with a manual like we didn't come with a manual it's like we evolved in caves we evolved in this is why we needed to do this right (laughs) this has all been a study we've had a few scientists who've looked into things and said why is the human body the way that it is like what sense does this make and that's through studying those pieces is how we've learned a lot of these understandings of ourselves and why we are wired the way that we are why we are wired to connect. Stephen Porges is somebody we'll be referencing in this episode a lot. Stephen Porges is one of those great minds to to this particular field. And specifically, his field is psychophysiology. So psychophysiology is essentially the body provides the brain feedback that we need to deal with, and the brain gives the body tools to deal with those situations and surroundings because the first rule of your brain is that it exists to keep you safe. And that being said, that's kind of how we find ourselves in the world that we are today, because a lot of those tools don't necessarily fit for our current existence. Mm. So we're going to dive a little more into that. So Porridge's started this conversation about 60, 50 years ago, about orienting in a defensive world. So it's a mammalian modification of our evolutionary heritage. And what he states in that is mammals had to evolve in a hostile environment, I'm quoting, in which survival was dependent on the ability to downregulate states of defensiveness with states of safety and trust. And these states had to support cooperative behavioral and health. So in other words, the brain had to split between being really good at connecting, really good at having empathy and communication and connection so that we could evolve and exist in a group and survive in a group and thrive in a group. But we also still had to be honestly really good at surviving in a world where everything wanted to kill us, where everything is stronger, faster, and more deadlier than us, honestly, sometimes even including people within our group, right? And so Because of that, we had to evolve in a way that your brain could connect with others, but be aware of things that could be possibly deadly. Because our world is deadly, however, we can't do, we have to kind of shift gears between I must be in a survival state and I must be in a connection state. So to be in a connection state, that means our brain has to notice what it feels like to feel safe. So Deb Dana, to quote her, the science of feeling safe enough to fall in love with life and to take the risk of living. So this episode is the neuroscience of safety. 
when you mentioned just this balance and kind of what it is we're discussing today about the way our brain balances between connection and safety. And I feel like this is such a great, such a great follow up episode, since we talked so much about empathy and connection. Now we're kind of getting to see how these two pair together. The first thing that I think of, honestly, when we think about finding safety and connection with other humans is when you first meet someone it's like you're meeting someone or even just walking in a parking lot or something like that and you're walking and you see these other humans you're almost naturally thinking are you friend or foe Mm -hmm. put simply of course but you're constantly in this yes you're constantly evaluating and jumping back and forth and so I'm already seeing I'm just already seeing this in real life. This is wild. So you're bringing us into a really good piece, which is we're going to consistently try to identify sort of what is this? Why are we talking about it? Why should we care? And what do we do about it? Yes. So why are we talking about it is that exact piece, which is this is one of those things where we are experiencing this on a non-inconsistent basis and we are completely unaware of it. And the the fascinating thing that came out of Porridge's work was he really looked into the details of what was going on in our system. And Deb Dana, who was in the mental health field, said, this is huge because I have so many people who are struggling with different pieces and trying to figure out why and are trying to figure out how to deal with them. And she realized that this was genius to explain the fact of you're dealing with these things not because something is wrong with you, but because literally we are wired in a very specific way to be aware of safety and to also try to connect with people. And we're walking kind of this tightrope between those two, trying not to fall too completely much into either side. Kind of the what is it? Why do we have it? Is honestly, to quote Porges, if we if we are not safe, we are chronically in that state of evaluation and defensiveness. How fascinating is that to try to live your your life and that where you're in that are you friend or foe all the time. But really, based on our evolution, that is kind of the thing that we had to do. But we do it without even thinking about it. And Porridge's will explain that a lot as well we as we go into further into this episode. Mm. So that first episode to kind of bring us back to where we've been, we discussed the amygdala and how that connected to the vagus system specifically. We actually brought it up the very first time. Yeah. Because we're, we were originally talking about the brain, but as I said, we're going to go real quick into the body. And the minute we talk about the vagus system, that goes into the body. So the vagal system being what we'll explain in just a second, that comes from your brainstem, very low into your brainstem, and it wanders throughout your entire system. So we're talking about it affecting your pituitary gland and many of your other organs from there because it, if you remember, your amygdala is saying, oh no, there is a fire. This is could be a major disaster. Yeah, this was the old brain. The old brain that's there like safety first, essentially. Yes, yes. So it's um, the middle part of your brain. So it's not the oldest part. Your brain stem is the oldest part. Oh, okay. And your midbrain is a little, is a bit younger than that. And then your prefrontal cortex being the newest part, both. Yes. And then as we evolved more and more as a species, we got prefrontal cortex. Perfect. So this is very interesting how it's all going to tie together, right? Gotcha. For visual people like me too, um, I'm also remembering just our map that we did from episode Mm -hmm, one. mm -hmm. The, The vagal system... Was that the highways that we described? Yeah, it is exactly. Love it. So it is 
from what we were describing in episode one, it's sort of like a house saying, oh, there's a huge fire, and then starting to send out an alert both to the city, to the county, to the state, if you're in a place like California, and this could become a massive wildfire. Yes. So you're sending out signals through through the highways and through airways. Pay attention. This is a really big deal. That's what goes on in our body. Okay, gotcha. And specifically, one of the major ways that it does it is through this thing called the vagus nerve. And vagus actually means wanderer. So as I mentioned, this is near your brainstem. It's actually the 10th cranial nerve. And it is not a nerve. It is actually a lot of nerves. So different visual comparison. Think of if you've ever worked in a place with a server and a lot of computers, how there isn't one cord. There are many cords all usually clumped together. Because that server is sending out all of these. This is a little old school for technology. I realize we're doing most of these uh, along the interwebs now. But... (laughs) historically what that was was it was one server that was often in an office and then you ran cords to connect to that server Mm -hmm. that is what this looks like inside of your body so you have a whole series of nerves that are actually sheathed together and they connect to different parts of your brains so your vagus nerve originates inside the brainstem it'll exit out of your cranium via the jugular kind of that same area around your neck and then what it's doing is it actually expands throughout your body and it's largely going two different directions down through the heart, the lungs, the diaphragm, and the stomach, and also a little bit upwards to connect with your neck, your throat, your eyes, your ears, and your facial muscles. So it's literally like spider webbing out mm-hmm. through your body, all mm-hmm. connects back to the, essentially the cranium. Mm-hmm. So Porridge just specifically looked into, I'm going to get a little technical for a bit, and then I will explain it. He's okay. looking at the medullary nuclei and the nuclei ambiguli. So medullary meaning inner region. And this is uh, in your forebrain. He's also looking at a dorsal motor nucleus. And these are key pieces that he was like, why do these things exist and why are they all playing together? So, so nucleus ambiguous deals a lot with respiratory sinus arrhythmia. I was going to put a warning, do not participate, and I will say do not participate in breathing activities or any sort of physical response if you're not in a place to do so, if or if it does not feel safe to you. If you have a history of panic attacks, specifically rapidly changing your breathing, I'm not trying to bring on a panic attack for anybody, that's not my goal. It is, if you feel safe and comfortable to do so, please only do that. I want you to take for a second and find your pulse, like right around your hand or your neck, whatever is comfortable to you. doesn't have to be accurate, but just kind of being able to feel your pulse. So now what I want you to do is to breathe really quickly and shallowly in your chest. So kind of that panting breathing, like. Do you feel your pulse change? Going faster. Yes. So now slow down your breathing and breathe into your stomach. Oh, it's slower and also stronger. Mm -hmm. So what that is, is that's respiratory sinus arrhythmia. This may seem obvious. I breathe faster, my heart rate speeds up. I breathe slower, my heart rate slows down. But how that is existing is something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which the nucleus ambiguous controls. So Porridge has realized that our breath and our heart are interconnected and looked for other things that might be interconnected. And he found that this was also connected to the larynx, the esophageal areas, specifically around the heart. So he's really realizing that this is connected to ingestion, expulsion, so vomiting as well, facial expressions, and emotions. You might say, why emotions? Yeah, why emotions? This is actually from Darwin. So Darwin discovered quite a while ago 
that facial expressions are the primary defining characteristics of emotions. We feel something, we demonstrate it often on our face. And if our face changes, if you kind of, anybody who's worked in customer service, if you smile, it makes you sound differently, it makes you convey something different, you can probably tell whether I'm smiling or whether I'm not. Wow, wild. What's really cool is if I spoke in a different language, you would be able to tell whether I was smiling or whether I was not, even if you did not speak that same language. The reason that is true, the reason why you can tell going into a culture where you don't know the language, where you're not part of that culture, that you can often get a sense of somebody's emotions is partially from empathy, right? It is partially those mirroring neurons, but it is also because emotions are neurally based. They are based within our neurons, which means we share them regardless of what language we speak. This makes so much sense why that would connect into safety. Literally what we're talking about today too is not only how we judge whether or not someone is safe is based off of these literal proof of connections that you're saying, like these emotions that appear in our neurons that are all just crazy examples of how our body is actually interconnected through this vagal system and that all leads back to how we decide whether or not something is safe. safe or not. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh my gosh, let's keep going. This there's, is great. There's more to Borges, but that is the beginning of his research as he started to look at the vagus nerve and how all of these things are connected. Why are your facial muscles connected to your lungs? Okay. Why does that make sense? Why is the wires connecting essentially the muscles of your inner ear connected to your stomach? How does that make any sense at all? And this is sort of what he really researched and fleshed out. And part of what this comes from is something he coined neuroception. So this is the way our autonomic nervous system, so autonomic being the nervous system responsible for control of bodily functions and not consciously directed, so such as breathing, heart rate, digestive system, as we mentioned, this stems from brainstem, right? Brainstem is controlling all of these pieces of our existence, our ability to keep living without necessarily our awareness of them. Yes. And what this does is it responds to cues of safety and danger. So a key piece of this is before you understand something, you assess it. So if you remember from episode one, when we talked about if you're walking along, say you're taking a hike and all of a sudden you see something and you jump and then you look down and you're like, that's a stick. Why did I jump from that stick? Yes, I remember that story. Before you understand something, you assess it. That's literally what neuroception is. So it is important to remember that neuroception precedes preception. Story follows state. We do a thing and then we try to make sense of that thing. But we do a thing without our awareness of it. We need to because we need to assess for safety. Again, your brain does not care if you're happy. It cares that you're alive. So it is going to do whatever it needs to do to make sure you are safe And then you're going to make sense of, why did I just do that stupid thing? (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's where this is coming from. Your body is participating in an unconscious evaluation of safety all the time. Sights, sounds, sensations, before your brain ever understands or makes any sense of it at all, your autonomic nervous system is judging whether it is safe. So you might feel anxious and have no idea as to why that's where we coined the expression right walking over my grave somebody just walked over my grave I feel an emotion I shouldn't feel I feel like aware and and kind of prickly 
for no reason at all, it is not no reason at all. It is because you have a thing essentially coined neuroception where something in your environment felt unsafe and you responded to it accordingly. Wow. So neuroception is essentially your gut feeling. It is somatic symbols that influence decision-making and behavioral without conscious awareness. This just occurs. And it is important to differentiate between perception, awareness, and deception automatic. Actions can become automatic and adaptive. They're generally the automatic nervous system is well below your conscious level. It is not necessarily making a conscious choice. It's moving in patterns of protection. And a working principle of the autonomic nervous system is every response is an action in service to survival. No matter how this kind of looks from the outside world, no matter how it looks from your perception, the autonomic nervous system doesn't make judgments about good or bad. It can't. Remember, good or bad is only in your prefrontal cortex. You don't have access to your prefrontal cortex if your amygdala and your autonomic nervous system says something is unsafe. So your body will just act or react because it is managing risks and seeking safety. And that's kind of a key piece. That, that is everything. So let's get a little bit more into what this looks like. So as we mentioned, right, you've got this nerve, the vagus nerve, that starts at your brainstem, right, around your, your cranial nerves, and goes down out through your neck and then out through your body. And it is our system of mobilization and our system of connection. And it is sending, right, 80%, 20% sensory information, brain to body. It is that communication piece, right? So I want you to now take, so you can have awareness of where this is going, place your hand on your cheek and then over your heart, move down to your abdomen and kind of move between these three places. This is essentially where the main parts of the vagus nerve are going. These are all the things it's largely in connection to, although your organs will have other actions to spread through to give sensory awareness to the other parts of your body, but this is the three main places that the, that the vagus nerve is going through. And it is going in distinct pathways, diverting at the diaphragm and specifically splitting around your diaphragm. So thinking about your lungs versus your abdomen, as we mentioned, as your breathing changed, right? As you were breathing shallowly at the very top part of your lungs and then breathing lower, that changes how your heart rate. It might also change how your mind is feeling almost felt like it was changing my vision too. So you have a part of this nerve that is affecting the organs kind of below the diaphragm and part of it that is affecting heart and breathing rate. Why does that matter? Okay. So we're going to talk about this nerve then in detail. And this nerve has three different layers to it. And so as you remember, so does our brain, right? So our oldest part of our brain is the brainstem. We also have the oldest part of this nerve. The oldest part of this nerve being the dorsal vagal nerve. Dorsal meaning back. And this is coming not just from our own ancestry, but the ancestry of all things. This is coming from all ancient vertebrae ancestors. It is the oldest pathway. It is 500 million years ago. It came first. And it protects specifically the only way we kind of had in any vertebra evolution, which is immobilization. It shuts down the body to conserve energy. So the response to danger, I can't, if you remember from empathy, I can't fight, I can't flee, I just have to survive somehow. We lie back and take it, right? From empathy, where the dogs that were yoked just seem to lie back and take it. Yes. That's exactly what this is. 
is the dogs that had some control over whether they would get shocked or not would be able to be in a fight or flight response. The dogs who were yoked who had no control over it would lie back and take it because I can't flee. I can't fight. I just have to survive somehow. Wow. And you're saying that is the dorsal vein in action. Like that dorsal is vagal. A, dorsal vagal in action. That yes. is its purpose is when you cannot run, when you cannot fight, and when you pretty much freeze or yes. even when if you like faint or black out exactly that's when you faint or black out that's not necessarily blacking out that's a different story okay in regards to your brain not being able to process memory into your hippocampus and it processes elsewhere gotcha okay but when like you fainting. faint definitely actually they'll talk about people fainting and it's usually in response to a dorsal vagal response interesting okay we call it a vasovagal syncope but there are pieces where your body will actually do what Levine calls a dorsal dive which is kind of a point of last resort and not so great for your system. Mm. So you might think this sounds extreme, but think of the number of times where we've just had to, in our current part of evolution, lie back and take it. For example, your boss yelling at you, a parent yelling at you, dealing with things like cops, the IRS, the things that we can't fight necessarily or flee from, we just lie back and take it. We survive it somehow. That is often your dorsal vagal response. One of the ways it protects you is it may make you feel numb when that happens. That is because this has an analgesic to it. It protects you both from physical and emotional pain. But it will bring aspects of fatigue, low blood pressure, difficulty thinking, remembering, focusing, processing. The reason for that is it's actually reducing oxygen to the brain. That's why it causes fainting, is it'll change your cognitive functions and disassociation because there's not as much of a blood flow. There's a specific reason to this. Dan Siegel hypothesized that some of this is coming from, think again, evolution running around in caves. Say a saber-toothed tiger attacks you, starts biting, you can't flee from it, you can't fight it, you just are trying to survive somehow. Your body will reduce blood flow to your brain because it's trying to protect it. So it'll actually move all the way down to the lower parts of your body so that hopefully uh, you bleed out less. It's also why your heart rate slows so significantly lower. And why your breathing shifts is it's trying to kind of keep you in a spot of stasis in the hopes that the prey will think that you are dead and get disinterested and leave. Gotcha. That's so interesting. I love the comparison of these right now because obviously caveman style, that's where it came from. That's how we can think about it previously. But when you mentioned what we were going through now, literally this dorsal vagal activating when your boss is yelling at you, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about a time where that happened for me and sitting in the chair and feeling frozen, mm-hmm. feeling like I couldn't move, feeling like I had no words to say to mm-hmm. in response to it, and then finally giving, given the safety to get up and leave and feeling exhausted mm-hmm. from what, just experienced, what I just experienced. Mm-hmm. And that was everything that you just described. Described, yes. And it is interesting because I'm betting before when your boss started to yell at you, there might have been a moment of anger. Oh, yeah. You went from a point of connection. I like this person. We work together. Everything is fine. To like, what do you mean? I did this thing wrong. 
And you went from anger, you can't necessarily, we're not supposed to, we're taught that we're not supposed to yell back at our boss, yell back at our parents, yell back at other people, Mm -hmm. right? So we have that kind of anger or anxious response, the awful feeling in the pit of our stomach, right? I want to flee or I want to fight. Yes. And then you can't do either of those, so you go into this numb spot. Oh, wild. So that brings us into the middle of this nerve. So we have the back of it, which is the dorsal. The middle is the sympathetic nervous system. And the front part is the vagus. We'll get to the vagus in a second. So sympathetic is 400 million years ago. And it is that anger or anxious piece. It's the middle of this cord. It prepares us for action. It triggers adrenaline to fuel fight or flight. And it originates to create mobilization. So it's located in the middle of back of your thoracic and lumbar regions of your spinal cord. So if you move your hands around to your back, kind of one hand reaching from your neck down and the other kind of waist up, the space between that is where the sympathetic nervous system starts before extending out to other organs. Mm. And this is in regards to a sympomedullary pathway, otherwise called SAM. I might be mispronouncing that. Again, I read all of this. I don't necessarily get to attend lectures. I apologize <laughs> if I've mispronounced that. And this is in regards to your adrenal medullary system, medullary being inside, and your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. So in regards to adrenaline, okay? The, I'm going to explain why all of that exists, right? Your startle response, as we mentioned, that kind of like, I don't know, stick when you're taking a hike, uh-huh. is incredibly fast. It is 100 milliseconds. Yeah, it comes literally out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You're, it's your body literally doing something, and you're like, whoa, what the heck? Like Exactly. And that's Sam. Sam is super fast, right? Okay. And Sam is supposed to be very short term, jump away from snake, and then regulate system, right? If short isn't long enough, then we kick on that HPA, that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access. That takes over when quick adrenaline doesn't relieve your distress. So it releases cortisol, as we'll talk about a fair amount as we continue to go. Cortisol is very important. Cortisol is helpful in the short term and very, very toxic in the long term and is one of the reasons we deal with a lot of the physical ailments that we have. Cortisol is toxic to your system, but it really is it because it needs to be there. It's in regards to your stress hormone. It's supposed to get you away, fight or flight, short term. And by the HPA being slower, I mean minutes rather than seconds. So again, still all happening very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. This will cause eye pupillation, so your eyes will dilate, vasodilation so your veins are literally expanding to increase more oxygen increase your breathing get get greater connection to your lungs and your muscles and it will actually change the muscles of your inner ear so it'll change your ability of what you're focusing on with what you're listening oh that's wild is that why you can hear so much better in the dark that would make sense the minute you're in the dark, the minute you're isolated, you immediately start feeling less safe. Yes. So if you feel less safe enough for your sympathetic nervous system to turn on for specifically your HPA, your, all of that to start activating, yes, you will start to be able to change. And you're not necessarily interested in hearing better. What you're hearing better is certain tones better. So when we are in a state of connection, when we're just like you or I, our inner ear is tuned towards what we're listening to. And if you've ever been pulled out of conversation by a sound it might be because that sound sounded unsafe if it sounds unsafe enough this will turn on enough so that you start listening not for the mid tones of a human voice mm-hmm. but for high tones or for low tones, low tones because those are the sounds more predators are going to make those and that unsafe sounds that is exactly why in scary movies you get the really high trembling violin like really really squeaky up there and jaws you get the low 
basses or cellos. Exactly. (gasps) Holy smokes. So it actually changes how you hear and what you're hearing for. Our ability to read facial cues is also affected. So when we're in a space of connection, neutral faces are fine. In a space of sympathetic, that acts that started to be activation between fight or flight, neutral is always bad. Neutral faces appear angry and neutral to us is dangerous because we're in a state of activation. Neutral, we don't know what your intentions are. You're obviously not feeling safe enough that you're not smiling, specifically smiling with your eyes, your whole face. I know that you, I don't know if you're safe. I'm more likely to gear towards you're dangerous. And we've got the cortisol running through our body. So we're finding it hard to sit still. We might feel disorganized, confrontational. Our breath starts to be shallow. Our whole body starts to change to be activated towards I need to fight or I need to run away. Mm, Okay. We might feel pressed for time. We might feel activated enough to make a choice, right? That's that adrenal. I've, I've got too, too much on too many things, and I'm trying desperately to make myself feel safe. So when I talked about when your boss was yelling at you, you did eventually go into that numb spot of like you just kind of had to take it. Right. And originally, you probably felt angry or anxious. Absolutely. It's sort of a almost like being called into the office like oh my gosh I know what's mm-hmm. about to happen mm-hmm. like this is this is terrifying like mm-hmm. I yeah definitely feeling maybe not even visual body shakes but like just an internal like movement yes. is happening yes it would have been very very hard for you on an evolutionary perspective for you to go back into whatever environment you were and connect with other people because remember we can't connect until we feel safe That will bring you into the very front part of this nerve, which is the ventral vagal. Ventral vagal is something we often identify as the smart vagus or the social vagus. Yes. So on an evolutionary perspective, this is 80 million years ago. And this is the literal foundation for health, growth, and restoration. And this is a very interesting part of the vagus nerve because only mammals have this. Lots of things have vagus nerves. Mammals are the only species that have this last piece because we need some of that connection. We need to be able to connect with one another we need to be able to be social so this is the ability to do that but also the ability to soothe and be soothed it is the ability to talk to listen to offer to receive to kind of move in and out of connection that reciprocity that mutual ebb and flow that is really important to relationships and that ebb and flow is our ability to give feedback to you are safe here you are also safe here we are both safe here we can both be vulnerable here that's that ebb and flow It's what is literally the ability to be wired to connect. So it slows your heart rate a little. It softens your eyes. It gives a kindness to your voice by nature. It also is the only place if you're in that ventral vagal where you have the ability to do self-compassion because you're safe enough to do self-compassion. It is being able to reach into our own suffering with kindness and to reduce our own stress with kindness. It gives us connection and groundness, and it helps us feel that sense of safety. It's very hard to do that when you're activated. Not impossible, but very hard. You have to be able to move yourself out of that. And make sense why when you are activated, you have to move into this sort of safer space in order to really even feel the benefits of Mm -hmm. any sort of self-soothing act. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know. I'm blown away by this because first of all, the first thing that absolutely blew my mind was the fact that mammals are the only ones that have this ventral vagal. And that made me just think of different animals, mammals specifically that work in herds, even like elephants, how they have this sort of compassion for one another that we can see. Mm -hmm. And it makes so much sense why you see them for that where you wouldn't for like 
Lizards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lizards. That's literally what I thought of too. I've, yeah, I've, there's no sort of like compassion. There's no sort of stick togetherness. There's no sort of connection really at all. Mm-hmm. That's unbelievable. Because you don't have that part. And now your you're also body. saying that that is why we have self-compassion. Yes. And we why we can to. is because of this. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. So we're going to summarize a little bit more because there's a lot to go into. Yes. So ventral vagal, we'll start from there again. That's where we just left. That's safe and social. Okay. So our heart is regulated. Our breath is full. We're tuned into human conversations and we tune out distractions. It is the idea of the bigger picture. We feel very connected. Our world feels safe. We feel the ability to be organized. We have the ability to follow through with plans, to take care of yourself, time to play, doing things for others, feeling proactive and regulated, that kind of sense of self-management. And in our body, our blood pressure is exactly what it's supposed to be. We have a high immune system. Our digestive is focusing as it should be. We sleep normally. I'm quoting a lot of Deborah Dana in this, um, who did a lot of this summary, okay? So that all sounds great, right? Like we all, we all are striving to, I want to sleep better. I want to, you know, have a healthy digestive system. I want to be able to have good blood pressure, right? We're trying desperately to do those kind of things, but we're not like that all the time. Yeah. Even wanting to move into a place of feeling organized and Mm -hmm. feeling like, like you can do things for yourself and for others in life. And that's just, you take time to play, take time for yourself. That is fulfillment. Yes, but that is ventral vagal. And we are not there all the time because we don't have the ability to be there all the time because we're either wired for connection or safety. So we are only there when we feel safe. When we start to feel unsafe, then we're looking at sympathetic, which again, mobilizes your fight or flight. So your heart rate is going to speed up. Your breath is going to become short and shallow, more oxygen, faster oxygen. We're scanning for danger. We're often feeling angry or anxious. We feel a little bit like the world is out to get me. We might feel chaotic. We might feel disorganized. We're going to have more anxiety, more panic attacks, anger, the inability to focus, difficulty following through, easily distracted, jumpy, irritable. It's also going to cause high blood pressure, high cholesterol, sleep problems, weight problems, memory impairment, headache, chronic neck and shoulder and back tension, right? Constantly on alert for danger. Those muscles are always tense and activated, stomach problems, and we are often sick. Okay. Those were all so relatable too. Absolutely. And clearly a part of your life. Yes. Clearly something you can't get rid of. Yes. As much as we would want to. And let's say you're not just in that fight or flight. Things don't just feel safe. They feel so unsafe that I can't flee and I can't fight from it. I just have to survive somehow. So that's going to be your dorsal. So it's going to give you immobilization and collapse. It's going to make your heart rate drop very, very low. Your breath is not enough. And you start to think I'm alone in my despair. I feel not feeling, not being. I feel hopeless, abandoned, too foggy, too tired to think. Things feel dark, empty. I am lost and no one will find me. We have problems with memory. We have depression. We feel isolated. We have no energy. We might even have dissociation or withdrawal. We often what's called a flat affect. So there's no facial expression to how we're speaking. We're just always flat all the time. We have chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, stomach problems, low blood pressure, diabetes, and weight gain. That is what happens when we are in a lot of the dorsal vagal response. Wow. If you live a life where you are in that dorsal vagal more often than the others, you're going to see all of those symptomology. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we're going to see a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Because we're bouncing in between, I don't feel safe or I really don't feel safe. So dorsal vagal is not enough energy to run the system. Sympathetic is too much energy to run the system. And ventral is just enough 
thinking in terms of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Not enough, too much, just enough. Oh, gotcha. Yes. Okay, so now we're talking about, we think about these, and as I'm describing this, I think it's all easy for all of us to think of instances of our world where this could happen. Deb Dana and Steve Porges would argue this happens far more often than you think, because it's happening all the time, right, neuroception, without that consciousness awareness. So Deb Dana did a great thing that I'm going to take from and kind of play with it a little bit, where she gave a day-to-day example. So that's what we're going to go through real quick to give an example of how this changes throughout your day. So let's say common existence, right, although less post-pandemic, but three years ago, common existence of I'm driving to work. It's early in the morning. I'm about to go to work. I'm listening to my radio. I'm jamming to my music. I am in my own space, doing my own thing, enjoying the beginning of the day. I'm absolutely at that top part of the ladder, right? Everything feels great. I, no matter what else is going on in my world, maybe I'm blasted into this song. It is my jam, right? Love it. All of a sudden, a siren sounds behind me. Oh boy. I'm immediately going to start to panic. My heart is going to, it's not common for our heart to start racing when that happens, yes. right? We go to pull over and we're looking around us. Where's the siren coming from? Is it coming at me? What did I do wrong? What is it possible that I did wrong? Yes. <laughs> I pull over my car and the police car rushes past me. Oh, great. Cool. No longer in, right? Sympathetic nervous system can yeah. now go back into Vegas nervous system. Not me. Great. Deep sigh of, of relief start listening to my music, go about my day, go into work, right? And let's say that dinner, I don't even think about it, like I'm staying at the top part of my ladder, and I go and I have time with friends because I'm in that connection piece. Mm. So go to dinner, having dinner with friends, and maybe your friends start talking about all the great vacations they're about to take, and they're really excited to tell you about it and the full details of like when they leave and what they're going to do. But all you can think of is, I don't have the ability to take a vacation right now. Things are too stressed at work. I don't make enough money. I have too many unpaid bills. I have too many unpaid student loans. I don't have the ability to do that, right? And maybe you start to withdraw from the conversation. You feel maybe upset about the fact that you don't have this ability and your friend does and you start comparing and it starts to make you feel a little angry. But your friend doesn't necessarily notice because they're really excited to tell somebody about their trip and they just keep going. So now you start to feel even more and more withdrawn. You start to feel like you will never get out of debt, that you will never have the ability to do things that other people are doing. You get very withdrawn. You go home. You just kind of want to crawl into your bed. You don't want anybody to find you. You just want to be alone. You start thinking, my life will never be good enough. My life will never be the things that I want it to be. You wake up the next morning. You think about your job that you're maybe really unhappy with, all these bills that you have to pay, feeling like you're never going to get ahead. You're still down at that bottom of the ladder, right? You are all dorsal vagal right now. And maybe you're like, okay, but I still got to get to work. And you get to work. Maybe you turn on the radio and there's a good, like, activation song. You start to get angry, like, why don't I have these things? I want these things too. Am I not deserving of these things? I, I forget this job. I'm going to quit this. I'm going to find a better job. You start thinking about all the the things that are not okay. And you start to get a little bit more activated. And then you're like, you know what? I have skills. I have things I can offer. I can take classes. I can, I can do different things. Right. And you start moving up that ladder, right? You went from dorsal vagal to, to sympathetic. Now we're getting into that ventral vagal of like, I can think of the future. I can make plans. I can change my life. That is what? 24 hours? Yeah, literally. Something you could easily experience in a day. And you experience all the time. Porridges will also say we sometimes have this moment of messiness, which is our sympathetic nervous system, as we go from that numb, pulled back dorsal withdrawal into trying to like that reconnect because they will argue you kind of have to move up and down the ladder. Porridges will say sometimes we have this often messiness, moments of messiness, which is your sympathetic nervous system getting you reactivated. 
Porges will argue you can't move from dorsal numb to connection. Can't do it. You have to have some activation to move you back up the ladder. Interesting. Hence the moment of messiness where you go from numb to sort of like angry or anxious to then being able to go into connection. Definitely. Definitely. We don't jump. Yeah. So thinking about, you know, sort of overactivation or underactivation, right? As we discussed kind of going into that summary of anxiety, panic attacks, anger, inability to focus, or on the dorsal vagal, depression, isolation, no energy, disassociation, withdrawal. If you were to search the two most common diagnoses in mental health that we experience as definitely in America, but probably the world, the National Institute of Mental Health will state that those are depression and anxiety. And in fact, to take that even a step further, Siegel will argue for interpersonal neurobiology. He'll state that every single mental health diagnosis, in his opinion, the whole heavy book that we all work from, can be either viewed as hyperarousal or hypoarousal. Essentially, we're living in a world where we are supposed to be wired to connect with the idea that, you know, certain times, like a saber-toothed tiger is going to run out and jump out and attack us. We don't live in that world anymore. Not that we don't live in a world that is unsafe. We live in a world that is differently unsafe. So we are, A, way more connected than we have ever been. We don't live in tiny little villages. We live in kind of an interconnected world. But we live in a differently safe world, and this has changed what we view as unsafe or safe all the time. Your saber-toothed tiger becomes your chemistry test, your taxes, the parent who's going to yell, hit, or harm you when you don't have the ability to get away, the partner who's going to do that, the boss who's going to yell at you. That situation has changed from us running around in caves with a single point of attack that I can usually feed or flight or maybe have to survive to some things that I have to survive through all the time, whether or not I want to. So if we think about this in psychotherapy as well, psychotherapy is doing kind of a different approach, which is looking at addressing both that hypo and hyperarousal, but trying to address both of those with the ability of helping somebody be wired to connect. We're trying to figure out somatic experiencing therapies are really powerful for this because they're really looking at therapy through a neuroscience lens, which is if you're hypo arousal, I have to activate you before I can regulate you. Hyper arousal, I have to regulate you because we're moving up and down that ladder. Yes. And you can't jump. And you can't jump. Yep. So I have to be aware if I give you calming strategies and you're in a dorsal vagal response, you won't necessarily feel calm and connected. You might actually go more numb. So it's being aware of like that window of tolerance and going above or below that window of tolerance. Oh, very interesting. Okay. And psychotherapy then being working on whatever is causing that uh, hyper or hypo arousal to bring you back into a space of safe connection, feeling organized, feeling the ability to play, feeling the ability to live the life you want to. So psychotherapy being about using the tools of co-regulation and relationship. And this is pretty key to what we're doing because again we're wired to connect or we're wired for safety so when we connect we feel safer hopefully so if we think about remember when we were discussing empathy we were discussing a group response we look to others in danger because we regulate one another we make sense of ourselves through one another it is a big piece of connection and this leads into attachment attachment is virtually the only defense young children have as they cannot protect themselves by fleeing or fighting. Attachment for security is the general mammalian and primate survival strategy. I'm direct quoting here. It's dealing with threats within the quantity of people that you have because that's all that children have. So attachment is a key piece 
to our survival. We have to connect to one each other right from the beginning, right? That's the only defense mechanism a small child, a baby has. I have to be connected to mom, right? I have to do all those pieces to make sure that mom cares about me, to make sure that adults care about me so that I can continue to survive. So we are born wired to connect and co-regulation is a key component for porridges. He says it's a biological imperative required for the sustainment of life. We must feel safe enough to move into connection and trusting relationships. And he will argue that your nervous system will reach out for contact and co-regulation within response to safety and danger, right? When we think about attachment, and we will actually go into some of the neuroscience of attachment because it is very fascinating for our whole brain development. Secure attachment and insecure attachment changes our whole development as humans. Not that there isn't stuff we can do about it, but it does key pieces to our foundation, right? And the reason for this being that we come into the world wired to connect because I need to connect with you so I'm safe, right? Yes. Living in an unsafe world from the very beginning, as we discussed in empathy, will change your response to stress. Yes. Hence, changing your whole system because you're more wired for safety. You're more in that sympathetic nervous system or dorsal vagal nervous system. So we'll get into attachment later, but starting just a little bit, one of the things we know with secure attachment is that it is the touchstone for exploration. So we discovered about 60 years ago in attachment theory that securely attached children will do a touch with their parents and then go off and explore the world. And when something feels unsafe, they will actually come back and literally like oftentimes touch mom or dad's leg and then go back into the world and explore. This makes sense in regards to porridges because I'm reconnecting with you so I know that I feel safe enough to explore the world. You mentioned like this is us being wired Mm -hmm. to that sort of direction. And so anybody growing up who doesn't have those connections, those sense of safety, they're growing up without wiring that into themselves. And they're more likely to absolutely believe that people are unsafe or will not care about them. And so this is really key piece to are we safe or are we unsafe, right? So say we're in conversation and I do a touchstone and you miss it and I'm more geared towards unsafety. I might go into more activation. If you really, really miss the fact that I'm activated, right, I might then go numb. Okay. And okay. So say I need to come out of numb at some point. Maybe I, you say something else and I start to like maybe become more angry at you. I will eventually flip back into that activation to go back up the ladder. Right. Yes. And okay. Porridges will coin this biological rudeness. It is when this social connection is interrupted and neuroception changes from safety to danger. So for example, one of his arguments is cell phones. We are wired to connect, but so many times we're looking at our phone, which breaks that connection, right? I might feel absolutely violating. You're on a date and your date is paying attention to their phone. That might feel violating, which therefore feels unsafe, even though clearly your date looking at their cell phone is probably not an unsafe thing, but it has broken the aspect of connection, which is then going to bring me a little bit down the ladder, potentially. Violations can also be positive. So we can expect is discomfort and then receive connection. So uh, eye contact, for example, say you and I are doing eye contact that maybe can feel very, very connecting or can feel very, very harsh. Like we let it go on too long without ever breaking eye contact, we start to feel activated. <laughs> and different cultures, different places have different responses to eye contact and what feels safe and what feels appropriate and what feels respectful, all in regards to neuroception and attachment and how this is all based. Something that can feel connecting for one does not feel connecting for another. Mm-hmm. So a key piece to knowing this is we are literally doing co-regulation all the time, right? We're around people quite often. And so being aware of when somebody says something that sets you off, was that actually activating? Do I need to respond to this this way? If I am just activated in general, because that can be outside of humans, what's my next response, right? 
to being able to add perception as well as neuroception, being able to add awareness as well as to unconscious thought can be a very helpful piece to this. We're getting a little bit into what do we do about this, but being, we're immediately dealing with these constant story follows state, but we can sometimes interrupt this. We can, if we are in the right space, connect to ourselves with kind of compassion and move there to curiosity. Yes. So this becomes really fascinating in terms of what do we think about this for trauma? Because trauma, specifically things like complex trauma, we're experiencing trauma over and over and over again. You know, as opposed to acute trauma, complex trauma, clearly, as we've stated quite a few times, is going to change the way our system is wired. We're going to live more in sympathetic or we're going to live more in dorsal. Yeah. And in fact, we might be living in both. Because a key piece to the diagnosis of trauma, if you read through the diagnosis for like post-traumatic stress disorder, you will see symptoms of anxiety and depression within trauma. Trauma is also important because one of the key things we've started to learn about it as a field, which I'm very grateful for, is that perception is more important than reality, which is very fascinating working with families when they come in with children who they're worried about who have been traumatized, and they're trying to figure out what happened. They want to know the specifics of, you know, did X bad thing happen to said child? Mm. And I have frequently told them, we won't know, and it doesn't matter. Because we have learned that the viewing of certain horrible things is as important. It is about perceived threat, not about necessarily actual threat. Not to say that actual threat isn't bad, mm-hmm. but it, trauma is an important piece about it that I used to train all the time on, is trauma is actually never about the thing that happened, right? I used to give trainings where back before the pandemic, where I would put up slides of what do you think of when you think of trauma? You might think of car accident, an assault, you might think of rape, you might think of some sort of violence, you might think of war, lots of other things that we immediately gear towards that must be traumatic. And that when we're looking at a diagnostic level is not the important piece. It is not about what happens to us, to us. It is about how we perceive this. This is why. Because it is a matter of, did we feel like we had no control over this thing or not? Yes, it is the pattern that your body is taking from it. Mm-hmm. It is like that perception is literally the pattern that your nerves are responding to and playing over and over and over again. Yes. And so it's almost healing the pattern rather than the source. Mm-hmm. Because you're, before your brain has even made sense of an incident, your body has assessed and decided what the stress response is. Yes. So say you're in a car accident and you've been in a car accident before and you have some semblance of this is going to suck, but it's going to be okay. I can survive this. You might deal better than somebody who may, for example, never have been in one before. Yeah. Or maybe you had a different experience where maybe you were not only in the car accident, but for your car, you were also trapped inside that car. Your door wouldn't open. That's going to create a different response. Yes. Because you're assessing for different things. So neuroception precedes perception. Story follows state. Story follows state. That is a key important thing, specifically in regards to trauma, because a lot of the times our immediate go-to is to blame ourselves for the traumatic incident. This happens all the time. I find it when I have done trainings or education around rape, because a lot of clinicians who have never been raped won't fully understand this, and they will consistently be working with their patients to say, no, this wasn't your fault. No, you didn't do anything. Like, you don't understand that the reason we have a tendency to blame ourselves is story follows state, and if it is my fault, I have some semblance of control over it. That is what our brain is trying to do. It is trying to get back into a regulatory process of, like, maybe I can do something so that this will never happen to me again. 
So we often blame ourselves for the traumatic incident. A lot of them, because we are trying to have some sort of control over it. And that is our story. If my story is, it is my fault, then my story can be, I can never do it again. Wow. Because having no control over it is a lot. That's yeah. Scary. Because control in a way is safety. Yes. And that's what our system is looking to do, right? It's looking to have some semblance of control. This makes so much sense. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this feels like it could also go in the opposite direction. I'm thinking back to our favorite snake is a stick story. And if you were the person hiking, saw something on the ground, jumped, thought it was a snake, and you are now more fearful of snakes because of that experience, even though it wasn't even a snake there, mm -hmm. that all makes sense too. You're more aware that snakes could harm you. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Very interesting. Because story follows state, I'm immediately going to think this thing might be more scary, which yes. is fair. You can be in an almost car accident and then be more afraid when somebody starts to like not break behind you too quick enough, right? Mm -hmm. A key piece also to when we're thinking about it is my fault when we look to rape trauma is rape is absolutely, I can't fight and I can't flee. It is I dorsal. have to survive this somehow. It is all dorsal. It is even more dorsal because a lot of more of the lower body regions are connected to that dorsal nerve. So the things that happen more to our lower body are going to be more activated to that dorsal nerve. So yes, absolutely being sexually assaulted is going to keep you in, in a dorsal space, right? Mm -hmm. And a dorsal space then is it has to be my fault so I can have some control over it. So a key piece to this is allowing yourself to be angry, to getting out of the it's my fault. To moving up the ladder. Into this is unacceptable. This is never okay. This is n absolutely not okay that, that this happened to me moving up the ladder so that we can go back into a place of healing. So we're going to take this into a deeper level of why do we care about this? Because I don't just want to talk about trauma. I also want to talk about historical trauma. Yeah. So we talked about an empathy about how we are carrying years of ancestral knowledge, obviously. Well, that is something we see in terms of historical trauma or ancestral trauma. And I'm going to reference an article by, I apologize for the pronunciation of this name, Kai Chang Tom, which is specifically looking into trauma, conflict, and call-out culture, specifically within a minority and oppressed community. So we're looking at trauma, again, as that exposure to a stress or a life danger that's overwhelming the body's ability to cope has a profound impact on the development of your brain and your nervous system, right? Okay. Repeated trauma, particular effects on the way we process and respond to social interactions. Yes. We've agreed. Yes, right? absolutely. So if bad thing happens to us from humans, all humans are dangerous. Yep. So your brain is creating pathways. And I, I say this example often. You can tell that I grew up in the Midwest. As I look outside and I see that it is briefly snowing in April. <laughs> when I think about neural pathways, I think about a field of snow. Like a big open field of just packed full of snow, right? In that field of snow, I can walk anywhere I want to. I can go anywhere from point A to point B, point C, point D. I can go anywhere in this field, right? But the first time that I do it, I'm kind of clumsy. If you've ever walked through a brand new thick field of snow, yes. like you're getting snow in your shoes, you might stumble, you might fall. It's clumpy, it's heavy, it's awkward. Yeah. But say I take B to A again, and, and then maybe I do it again. Each time I do this, that snow becomes more packed down and it becomes more of an actual path. Yeah. It becomes an easier path. That is what your brain does. 
Your brain can go anywhere and do anything. It, it, you are capable of echolocation. <laughs> like we can do phenomenal things. But the first time we do it, the first time we learn something, it's awkward, it's clumsy, it's not comfortable. But the more we do it, the more we create that neural pathways because what fires together, wires together. Literally, our synapses are learning that particular path and carving that path so that it is faster, it is more efficient, we have a response to it. That is for good and for ill. It means that we can get really, really good at the guitar or we can get really, really good at being defensive and in a stress response. We can get really protective of our system, right? Neural networks are really wired to figure out, am I safe? Am I in danger? Am I loved? Am I unlovable? Is this trustworthy? Is it untrustworthy? Whenever we are harmed, and this is confirmed that we are bad, unlovable, peoples are untrustworthy or violent, this wires together. Whenever we are harmed, this re-thickens that particular pathway. Yeah. So traumatized communities, if we're talking about historical trauma, this is one of the reasons why Tom argues they struggle so profoundly with loving because the whole community, that whole identity has experienced so much suspicion, so much fear of betrayal. And we have come to believe because we're wired, right? We've bloomed and pruned. We've wired into what you're doing is potentially unsafe. And I'm waiting for you to confirm that is we've come to believe that any mistake means that you're bad or dangerous. We were just talking about of when, when you say a thing that is harmful to me, do I say in a space of maybe you misheard that? Maybe I can experience that with curiosity. Of, mm-hmm. Or do I go into no bad people are, are harmful. You are must be a bad person. Do I immediately start to gravitate towards call out culture? Holy smokes. So this is what can lead to call out culture because we believe that making a mistake any mistake is enough to show me that you are dangerous and I need to remove you from me completely. In fact, I need to remove you away from anybody who might be like me. You are too dangerous to keep amongst us. In addition, symptoms of trauma, a key piece is that we start to move into black and white thinking. We do black and white thinking when we've experienced trauma because we need to think faster. We need to be able to respond faster. So everything becomes all good or all bad, all safe or unsafe, because we move into a binary of thought because it's quicker, it's easier to understand, it's a faster response. So a safety response is I will move more into black or white thinking so that I can respond to something as you are safe, you are unsafe, and I will do this much faster. Can you give me an example of that, of when black and white thinking I guess, how it would appear from from this repetitive trauma or from this like repetitive thick path that we are creating that it eventually, you're saying it turns into black and white thinking yes. or it can. Yes. We are seeing this, as I've said a couple times, we are living in a world that has undergone some semblance of a trauma, right? Yes. Regardless of how you think about the pandemic, we were living in a situation where where somebody said, this is deadly, and we all need to quarantine because of it, right? Yeah. So things became very black or white. Are you wearing a mask or are you not wearing a mask? Got it. In terms of, do I think of you as safe or do I think of you as unsafe? For some people, that became, you're not wearing a mask, you're safe to me, or you're wearing a mask and you're safe to me. The mask in and of itself is neutral. Yes. It is fabric. It is material. But we took that into a black or white thinking very quickly. 
Wow, that's a great example. Thank you. And all people who do this are safe or all people who don't do this are unsafe. Yes. So it's really important because when we're living in that all things are safe or unsafe, we're trying to do this faster. This is hard when we're trying to reconnect because reconnection is messier and requires that prefrontal cortex piece. It requires us to think through things. And without higher thinking or knowing how to feel safe again, it's so much harder to do conflict resolving, which is very complicated. It is so much easier to fight or to flee. Call out culture is way easier than call in culture. It's <laughs> a great way to put it. Tom will also argue about being aware of our own trauma survival strategies. And Tom says, to quote, my point is not that we need to get rid of our trauma survival strategies or to doubt our own bodies, but perhaps we need to stop thinking of our trauma as individual and see it as a collective so that we are not suffering alone in our trauma, a community composed of one against the world thinking, but rather a community of healing together. Tom argues change begins when the belief of change is possible, when we believe connection is possible. If we can do healing on that cellular level, moving back into that vagus state can connect with others. Being able to get that kind of regulation, we can move into a space of connection and prefrontal cortex, that ability to do rational thinking that you don't have without being in your prefrontal cortex, that you don't have in the sympathetic vagus response, so that we can start thinking of what fires together wires together in a way of which we want it to do. So we can have imagination and new and unique ways of dealing with conflict. So what fires together wires together can go the other direction. Loving contact breeds loving contact. Mercy and forgiveness breed mercy and forgiveness. So Tom would argue as a mental health professional, the ability to change your breathing, to change your sinus arrhythmia when you become activated, to start taking calmer breaths and get back into that space of internal connection when we might feel angry or activated when somebody makes an ignorant comment. Instead of lashing out, can we take a breath and connect and say, you might still be harmful, you might still be somebody who would do harm to me, but maybe I can assess first and assess with a little bit more thought. So can we look to connection to others, elders, peers, friends, family? Can we be attuned to ourselves? Can we start figuring out, can we start learning and, and working on the fact that we are good, we are whole, we are lovable? Grounded in connection, can we reconnect and repair? Can we learn other options besides fight or flight? Can we take space from each other rather than harm one another? Can I walk away from you, regulate my system, move out of sympathetic, move out of dorsal, get back into a space of ventral vagal and say, did you mean to say that? Did you mean to do that? Can we talk about the fact that this harmed me, whether you knew that it harmed me or not? Can we work from a place of repair? But Tom says this is hard. It is hard to speak from a place of humility rather than anger righteousness. Being angry feels good. It feels safe and is sometimes it is necessary to keep ourselves safe. But it is harder to move away from that automatic safe space and back into a back into a space of vulnerability to say, did you mean to do this thing? This is harder, but it does have value. Yeah. I'm really glad that you shared that. I was sitting here thinking of just how easy it could be if we could all do that. But 
It is so it's hard. It's so hard. That first, walking through that first patch of snow, trying to make the first path is difficult. It's hard. It's heavy. It's clumsy. It can be tough, but and the repercussions it is, can be amazing. And that path is known. And that path being known, especially when we feel unsafe, is incredibly valuable. Because we, we're trying to go to the fastest thing possible so that we can stay safe. Yep. So yes, this is absolutely hard. The question is, what do you want from life? Tom will also argue it is hard to do this because we also have to learn to love our own capacity to do harm and to be wrong. We have to own our, our own ego, our own capacity for making mistakes and processing conflict. Tom will very much argue that it is important to stay safe, but there's a difference between setting boundaries on harmful behavior, which can and absolutely often needs to be a necessary step from punishment or wrong. And a beautiful thing that I'm going to directly quote from Tom is, boundaries are a necessary part of love. Setting boundaries is the way that we can create the space to love ourselves and others at the same time. Because there's a difference between setting a boundary and continuing harmful actions. There is a difference between ending a relationship and stepping away from that relationship and asking for accountability. To be able to do repair, to be able to do reconnection, oftentimes we have to own where we have made a mistake, where somebody else has made a mistake. I often say within conflict, within disagreements within issues it is rarely zero 100 in terms of fault i will often say to people it is not uncommon that there can be a 90 10 and i do my part whenever possible to try to own my 10 i do this because we both need that sense of reconnection and we i do that that 10 percent because maybe you did a harmful thing but maybe because i've been harmed by somebody similarly I reacted to it bigger than I should have. My reaction to your harm might have also caused you harm. And now we are just harming each other. So it is incredibly important for us to be able to state, okay, you harmed me. And you can own up for that action. And you can say, I didn't realize that that was going to cause you harm. I realized why I did that and how that happened. Let me figure out if I can fix that so I don't do that in the future. And I can say, when you cause me harm, that doesn't mean I have the right to lash out at you. I don't have the right to harm you because this, for this example, is a miscommunication, not a place where I needed to fight or flee, but a place where I was emotionally fighting or fleeing. So. Is there a better way that I can respond if you accidentally harm me? Can we work to learn where our own trauma, our own history can accidentally impact each other, can accidentally brush up against one another so that we move forward together knowing that we have these spaces that are trickier and we are both working to resolve them? Can we make and move steps to move to a brighter future together? Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. To learn more, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. 
And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email or reach out via social media to get started. You can find our information and more at www.brainblownpodcast.com.